1: Thanks for tuning in. And welcome to the April 4th, 2021 Spring Fresh Edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. What's your story? Tonight is a storyteller trio featuring a digital drama series about a late in life love story a talented singer almost overshadowed by a sibling, and first up, a villainous character actor with progressive politics and a heart of gold. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. I'm in balmy Palm Springs talking with actor talent manager, producer, and podcast host and co-host, Jasper Cole. You wear more hats than the Queen of England. Now, are there any additional titles that you'd like to mention that go with your name? I used to write a lot, but acting's my true passion. Why aren't you writing?
2: I don't have time because I do all these other
1: things. How do you identify in the LGBTQI plus landscape?
2: Gay man of a certain age. 55 and over, and I've actually been
1: out since I was about 23. The recorded intro to your one-on-one with Jasper Cole podcast describes you as Hollywood's bad guy, and that's always stuck out to me because the visceral Jasper Cole that I see doesn't match, in my mind, who you are internally. Tell us how the Hollywood bad guy moniker came to be attached to you.
2: Well, I'd say for the like the first half of my career, I was playing sort of average guys. Kind of, I was never really leading guy, and I was never really extreme character. And I was grateful to get any work, but I was sort of I fell through the cracks. I was sort of like the best friend, the, the buddy, or whatever. And then in 2007, I got cast in a Michael Eisner series called Prom Queen. And I got to play this kind of villainous character. It's the first time I'd really played a bad guy, and I got great response from it. I was just turning. Forty, I believe around then and I just made this conscious effort put myself in my own lane or pick a lane or get typecast or whatever so I consciously grew my hair out. I grew the beard out and Kind of just changed my whole look my whole image and had to sort of reintroduce myself to the business now the Hollywood's bad guy thing just I think in a series of press that I did for a film MacGruber that came out in 2010 the press, they sort of label me Hollywood's bad guy. I always say I'm in a group of really great actors, and we all play bad guys in Hollywood. By no means am I the Hollywood bad guy.
1: How does your sexual orientation and how you identify within the LGBTQI community, how does that all coincide with that image? And do you see it kind of working together, or do you see it as something that you, just, that you consciously have to separate?
2: Well, it's interesting. I don't separate it at all. I've sort of just been, I've been out for, since I started working. The irony is, and this is something interesting, I rarely, if ever, get cast in a gay quote role now. I don't know if that's because the parts I play, it just hasn't happened to me. But prior to this kind of look, I mean, I did play after play, you know, Boys in the Band and The Normal Heart and a lot of my theater career was playing gay characters. But when it comes to TV and film, I think there is this sort of, I guess it's not stigma, but there's something about they, there still is a perception of how I guess I should look if I'm going to play a villain. Rarely, sexuality is never in any of the characters I play or have played so far. Hopefully that'll happen.
1: What are people's first impression of you before they speak to you or, or get to know you?
2: Well, I've been told which is odd because it doesn't match me but i i have a very severe look at times that's what helps me in my acting obviously i i must come off a little scary at times or a little standoffish which is you know my real personality is nothing like that at all and so that's part of the reason i started doing my podcast one-on-one with jasper cole just to let people see my real personality now a good thing about me too is My voice doesn't really match my look all the time, which has been a plus for me in my acting career, because a lot of the bad guys that I play tend to have a little vulnerability to them. I play on that in the characters I play. I always kind of bring a certain vulnerability to them.
1: You're from Georgia, so you have a certain Southern genteelness about you that that comes through with your demeanor. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: I've been gone 32 years from the South, but there's a dichotomy. A lot of people think Southern accents can immediately make people sound stupid. But like any accent, there's different regions You know, of, of an accent. There's the Appalachian, and there's the blue blood, sort of upper class, how y'all doing kind of thing. But I think it's hard to, to ever lose that essence as a child, the way you started speaking. I never really did anything to try to change my voice at all. I just thought, this is who I am. I can turn it up more, obviously, and become more Southern.
1: Do you, do you kind of mess with people sometimes with that?
2: Yeah, I do. In fact, this last, I just played a homeless guy recently, and I didn't even tell the director, but on the very first take, I just went as Southern as I could be. It just took them all that, because I was playing this grungy bad guy, but he loved it. He was like, oh my God, Jasper, make, that's your voice for this character because it just totally like disarmed everybody and so it gave this character this you know this whole friendlier approach to it because I don't think we're all one way or the other you know we're all different colors and shades and so that's what I try to bring to the characters.
1: As active as you are within various aspects of the entertainment industry in Los Angeles how did you land in Palm Springs?
2: Well, my husband Dennis, for the first 12 years of our marriage, l- worked in Phoenix. He would only come home on the weekends. And so, it, not that Palm Springs is halfway between, but it was kind of like, you know, let's get a place in Palm Springs and it'll, it's, it'll cut the drive from Phoenix three hours or whatever. So, truth be told, I'd only been to Palm Springs twice in 20 years. Hated it. When he told me that, I thought, well, good luck. I mean, enjoy it. I'm, I'm not dying in the desert. However, like a lot of people's perception, once I actually came here started spending time here, I fell in love with it. But I still meet people now in L.A. especially who have the same opinion like I used to. People say to me, why do you live in Palm Springs? What is there to do in Palm Springs? I think Palm Springs is like a small town with progressive ideas. So you get the best of both worlds.
1: So given those aspects to Palm Springs with the politics and the high percentage of LGBTQI individuals here in the town, do you see yourself sort of exploring some of those possibilities in the political realm?
2: I was never that politically involved. I mean, I always voted. I was always present. But this Trump thing has turned me on to like being a political junkie. Palm Springs reminds me a lot of West Hollywood in many ways in terms of the city government. Like you mentioned, it's predominantly gay and lesbian, trans, everything. All the letters of the alphabet are represented in Palm Springs myself politically I would never run for office but I would love to stay involved in local politics I purposely remain registered in Los Angeles because I feel like I spend more time working there and I think I can lend my voice there as well as here but my husband Dennis is much more active here in Palm Springs politically than I am he actually would be a really good candidate for something down the line
1: So you're happily married living in Palm Springs booking film and television acting gigs, podcasting four seasons now on -on one-on-one with Jasper Cole, and now our podcast that you and I do called Breaking the News. You're managing successful clients and producing projects as well. Now, how do you do this and remain one of the most grounded, calm, focused, and kind and supportive people that that I've ever known? Well, thank you for that, first of all. I I think actually living out here helps,
2: being away from... LA constantly I mean I was so rah-rah LA all the years I lived there and I still love LA but I'd be the first person that would like don't say anything bad about LA kinda person so it's no shade to LA but I'm fortunate that I get to work from home so when I'm not acting when I do these other things it's basically the computer and and the phone so as you know I can be anywhere in the world actually still managing producing and even now podcasting and doing the radio show can do that from wherever as I've gotten older, I've gotten calmer, I don't have to hustle as much. I think I just reached a certain age now where I'm just grateful and I'm just in the moment and accepting and I'm not, I'm not chasing as much anymore as I used to.
1: This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU, and you're listening to my interview with Jasper Cole. You're so laser-focused on, on politics, and you seem to know everybody or have had some experience with politics. Tell us about your interesting connection to the Georgia governor's race.
2: So the current governor, Brian Kemp, he and I went, we grew up together in Athens, Georgia. We were really close friends some years past high school. I know his wife very well and his wife's sister. You know, Athens is a college town, but it's a small town. Now, Brian is obviously Republican and was a Trump supporter. My family's one of the few Democrat family left. I always say last one out of Georgia. We were politically diametrically opposed, but we always had a very respectful relationship because he was Secretary of State. In years before that, he was a, a congressman from Georgia. He actually took over his, his wife Marty's dad's seat, but, his, but her dad was a Democrat, so he ended up changing parties and became a Republican. So, so we've always been respectful, but when he started running for governor this time, I mean, the, the race baiting, and the driving that bus around, and the van talking about rounding up the Mexicans, and I don't know if you remember he had a commercial with a shotgun on the front porch. So that person, I, I don't know that person. Like, I've never met him. That's a character he was playing. And so those of us who really loved him and knew him, we, we were very taken back. But I kind of get it now because that's like what some people say about Trump, people in the showbiz part of his life. For instance, Joan Rivers was quoted many times as saying, oh, I just love him because he's just all showbiz. He's just all show. They were really taken back, like who he he became when when he became president. So that's how it's been with Brian. So we've corresponded through the interweb because our families are friends and my brother is friends with him. My brother and his wife were big supporters of Brian. So with him, we've had private conversations, and it just solidified the point I always know is that many politicians are playing a character, but unfortunately, the characters they're playing affect people's lives in horrendous ways. He said to me one time, it's similar to you, you know, you play these characters, and I thought, no, my, my characters don't, you know, change people's lives. And lastly, what, what he also said to me was, like the anti-abortion law, he goes, I'm just fulfilling campaign promises. I know that it's going to get shot down, so it's not really going to pass. But this way I can say I I fulfill the promises to my constituents.
1: And unlike you, which I really appreciate, you are who you say you are. When Somebody really gets to know you, and I really appreciate that about you. What would you like to impart to younger generations to help them understand how important it is to stay plugged into what's happening in the world around us?
2: I feel like it's almost blasphemous if they don't because we're, they're living in a time now that they have all this technical stuff that they can stay plugged in. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have the ability to have all the internet and the Twitter and all the social media. There's not a real excuse. They don't really have a really good excuse for not being plugged in because they have so many opportunities. So I, I think the most important thing is to just enjoy the journey that they're on and be to be themselves. Don't try to please people early on. I wish if I had learned that. And like we talked about living in the moment, and and quit talking about this thing about when I make it in life. Just know that you're actually, every day that you get up and you're contributing and whatever you're doing in your journey, that is your journey and you're making it. You have to just keep growing and learning. So it's hard to say this because when we are in our 20s, we thought we knew everything. That's okay, but just stay open to knowing that you don't know everything and as you get older, then you know, hopefully, wisdom will come, more wisdom. But I just think I'm impressed with the young generation because I think looking back on my generation, I think they're they're really the reason we have so much social acceptance, especially with the LGBTQ community. I don't think we would have had gay marriage without a lot of the young mindset. And you know, Course in Miracles talks about there's only one mind, we all share one one thought. So whenever every thought we put out there goes into the universe and it's collective. So the more positive thoughts we can put out, the better.
1: Is there a particular thought or phrase or saying that kind of, maybe it's from Course of Miracles for you, that really sticks out in your mind and something that you grasp onto every day that you would like to leave us with as food for thought? Course of Miracles
2: says there is only love and fear. Nothing else exists. So at any given moment, we choose to be coming from a place of either love or fear and we have that ability in our lives. So in any given situation, take a moment, step back, and go, No, am I approaching this from a fear-based point, or am I approaching this from love?
1: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio, and you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? More info can be found at his official website, jaspercole.com don't go away we'll be right back
0: Mabel Hampton dancer and activist coming up now on the Rainbow Minute born in North Carolina in 1902 Mabel Hampton was an abused child so at age 8 she headed out on her own in the 1920s, she found work dancing in a Coney Island show which led to stardom in all black productions in Harlem She rubbed elbows with sexually ambiguous entertainers like Bessie Smith and Gladys Bentley. In the 1930s, jobs for black performance were scarce, so Mabel went to work as a cleaning lady in New York City for the next four decades. By the 1960s, she'd become an icon in the black lesbian community in the Bronx. She spoke at the New York Pride Parade in 1984, saying, I would like all my people to be free in this country and all over the world, my gay people and my black people. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's ambassador for inclusion, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you're listening to IMRU Radio. Families can be competitive. And when your half-sister is Barbara Streisand, your own music doesn't always get the attention it deserves. But tonight, we shine our lavender spotlight on the work of LGBT ally Rosalind Kind. Welcome to the show, Rosalind.
3: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for
1: having me. Well, I'm so glad that you could make time for us, because you could have like spent the day in your dining room today, or maybe in the den. You were doing a little <laughs> field trip, you know, a little vacation. I stay-cation. can pick whatever
3: room I want a vacation in to it, my studio, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> it's been a while since Barbra Streisand's sister, Rosalind Kind, released a new recording. However, for the last year, Rosie has been in the studio working on a new CD. Through the encouragement of friends, fans, and family, she's released two songs that have become so very important to her as both a woman and an American, entitled Save the Country and Light of Love. So let's start off with Light of Love. Tell us what your inspiration was for that song and what message you want to send to your listeners.
3: Light of Love is a project of my heart. I was going through my own soul searching way back in the 80s. 1984. My career was up, down, sideways. I was married. I got divorced. And I was really looking at my life. And while on the road, I did a lot of reading about the new age and spirituality. And I've always been very spiritual. I was raised to be spiritual and may not always be my Judaism, but I believe in my Judaism, but I'm more spiritual, not so much pointed. But I like the good things of every religion. It's very interesting. I was on my own soul search because I was kind of lost and not understanding why I'm here. Because I seemed to be getting mixed messages from God, the universe, some things were great, then it would fall behind or whatever. And I needed to explore really who I am other than who my managers and my representatives told me I was and find the real Razi and why Razi's here. So I did a lot of reading and I came to realize that there's got to be more to life than just this one time around and more to it than just this planet. In 1984, I went and had a past life regression. And in that regression, I went back to a lifetime right through the birth canal. I saw no other lifetime but this one lifetime. And it was in Lemuria, the West Coast Atlantis. I was a man. I was in a turban with pantaloons and sandals. I lived in a stone hut. And this particular day that I went back to, I was fighting a duel with another gentleman over the love of a woman. And she was standing nearby. I guess it was a sword fight. And accidentally, she is the one that got injured and got killed. All through my recurring life, I have been searching for that one love. However, in my regression, it came out that it really isn't just a one-on-one love to one person that I'm looking for. The words that we came to at the end of the meaning were world, harmony, peace, universality, humanity, humility. It was all about people, healing. The word association told me why I'm here. I'm here to heal. And how do I heal? I'm not a doctor, but I heal with my music. In 1987, August, came the Harmonic Convergence, and I heard about it and read about it, and I wanted to be part of it. So a friend and I went to Sedona, and at four o'clock in the morning, we climbed Bell Rock and landed on one level or so, and there were people all around the mountain. Groups of people chanting to bring the sun's rise up for the morning. And you could hear the chanting, and it was the earth's vibration. And this was the day that all the planets were aligned, and that doesn't happen often.
1: Isn't Sedona an amazing place? Oh my,
3: it's the place I go to heal and the place I go to balance myself when this, the busy world gets to be too much.
1: It does vibrate, doesn't it?
3: Whenever I go there, I find so much peace and tranquility and mm-hmm. happiness. I go to the stupa, I go around. I mean, that's why I'm compassed. I'm born a Jew. I know my Jewishness. I believe in my Jewishness. I love it because it's very welcoming. The way I was brought up, you know, to yeah. welcome the stranger and all that. There's so much goodness there. So I don't go against it, but I just opened myself to other things as well. Acceptance of others, the way others believe. In a way, I speak more spiritually these days than just as a, a, a young Jew. A, not young anymore. I'm an al A Jew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I beg
1: to <laughs> in differ. In my later years. A Jew. <laughs>
3: A spiritual
1: person,
3: <laughs> more in a universal way.
1: Oi, but young.
3: Oi, I give out. Oi, but young. <laughs> uh, in a much more universal spiritual way. Yeah. That the light that we come from, the light which is God, which is the universe, has been instilled in each and every one of us. It's in our heart. It's in our soul. It's who we really are. If we learn to use it for the right purpose. So that day, just. All the different people that got together there just filled me up to such a feeling that when I came home, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to express it. Now, I had never written before, but I asked my musical director, Michael Orlandis. We wrote that song. He did the music, and our friend Judy Quay was co-lyricist with me. We wrote it in the early 90s, and I did do it in a New Age show that I did here in L.A. at the Roxy and stuff. I I did a New Age show. I introduced it at the Rose Tattoo at that time, and I had done the Geraldo show, and I announced it, and people were calling the club. When is she going to be there? How long? Oh, no, no, no. you got to hold her over because I can't get there. I'm coming from uh, Louisiana. I'm coming from, you know, whatever. But we were just working on it at that time, and then I did a fuller-blown version of it at the Roxy, It was wonderful. It's just that I don't think the masses were ready yet. Mm -hmm. And since that time I continued on my path Always being the spiritual person that I am Always believing there's something bigger and greater than me or anything else on this earth And later years I go for readings And I did see a medium because I lost my mom, I lost my dad when I was 18 And uh, I've had out-of-body experiences with each one of them And I've been read by a medium A lot of people in the room she was reading There were 10 people there She always said that the souls that are calling out to her the loudest on the other side were the ones that she would hear first. Then she came to me and my mom came and my grandmother came and she said, oh my God, the hair is standing up on my neck and on my arms. You're a healer. She had no idea who I was. She only knew people's first names. And she said, and you heal with your music. I came to realize and believe totally in why I am on this earth, for what purpose. And everybody says, when you find your purpose, that brings happiness.
1: This is Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to my interview with Rosalind Kind.
3: So I've been on that path ever since. What I want to message out to my audience is because of that. So I've become much more aware of wanting to extend positive messages and bring people's hearts together, especially in a world like today that we're all going through such anguish, such uneasiness with hate and violence and distrust, separation.
1: How do you think the message of light of love can heal with what's going on today?
3: Number one, we are the light that we were born with, which came from God or the universe, however you experience it. There's really only one, but we all have different names for the one. Some people follow different religions, but really it's all one. And if you're really spiritual, it's all positive. It's all goodness. You come from that place that we've always learned. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Spread the love. Nobody is greater than the next guy. I don't care if you're the wealthiest or the poorest. Nobody is greater. It's who you are in your heart. And it's what you extend outside of yourself that tells me who you are. And if everybody's heart could come together, what a marvelous world this would be.
1: If that was everyone's starting point.
3: Yeah. Well, that's what what it should be, the basics. You know, God gave us choice. The universe gave us choice. What's your choice?
1: And you talk about the light. I love that. And I've heard some reports about this coronavirus pandemic that's going on right now that we're all having to yeah. deal with. We're all going to know somebody. I already do. Yes, I do. I'm
3: friend yeah. of mine
1: has it. It doesn't like exposure to sunlight. So there's another reason to go to the light.
3: To go to the light. <laughs> yeah. The light is healing. The light is. will conquer the darkness. And we have to have all those angels of light come out. It's time to fight the darkness back. Time for a time of positivity and goodness and kindness and compassion and civility and sanity. Civility and sanity.
1: Civility and sanity.
3: Civility and sanity. There was
1: a great duo in the 60s, weren't they? Civility and sanity. We should bring him back. We should bring him back. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Right? And, you know, with the Light of Love, we can also save the country.
3: I had done that in my New Age show. While I was working on my new recording, I came in this day. I was working on Light of Love. We had finished Light of Love, and I was going to put Light of Love out first. But with all that was going down, I came in and I said to Stefan Oberhoff, my producer, I said, Stefan, you have to listen to this. I think this needs to be... The first one out, and we have to work on it. It was a song originally, as you know, written by Laura Nero in the 70s and very popular during the Vietnam War when all the college kids were protesting. It was a big hit, and so many people recorded it. But we had to find a way to do it so different than everybody else.
1: And you did. You had to be
3: out of the box.
1: You've incorporated a lot of different musical style. Exactly. The, yeah, the composition exactly. of it, the orchestration of it, is, is really, it's, it's wonderful. It's just very eclectic, Thank and you. it really reflects i think the story of america the fabric of america and if
3: you listen to the very end at the the very end we're like back in the city and it's new york and it's traffic and it's stefan's voice going hey watch where you're going because people have to pay attention yeah you know be considerate of the next person we have to heal that be more aware of what we do we have to start realizing what we're doing what we're saying
1: why do you think there's such a disconnect
3: Because I think that there's distrust. I think that people, instead of taking the time to learn what they don't understand or what's different, they just get fearful of it. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, a melting pot. I remember standing on line waiting to buy my ticket for a hard day's night downtown Brooklyn with a girlfriend. And all the kids on the line were talking. And I made friends with this black girl. And we started giggling and laughing. And, I, you know, we bought tickets together. And I invited her to my house. I didn't know differences. I knew from the person how they were as a human being, not her color. But, you know, that's what it was. I mean, I lived in an area where the Protestant church was behind the Catholic church. The Catholic church, St. Jerome's, was right on the corner across the street. My temple was several blocks away. We were all encompassed because, you know, just like New York is going through this misery now because everybody's on top of each other. It wasn't that bad back then. It was a lot less populated, but it was still city. And there were more people of different backgrounds that resided there.
1: It's truly a melting pot. It really is.
3: -hmm. I can't imagine... Not knowing all the different ethnic foods. I love food. I have to watch what I eat, but I love foods of different countries. Right?
1: With New York, you know, you could go walk out of a building and walk right into a conversation with somebody you never met in your life. And that's just the way life is there. People connect, they're not afraid to communicate with each other, to reach out to one another.
3: Well, especially when you grow up in Brooklyn, because those are the years. And, you know, I'm, I was born in the 50s. You're a oh 60s god! Girl, when though. I think about that, <laughs> But it was a time after the Second World War and everything, and people, you know, lived in these communities. And we lived in a, in a community called Vanderveer Estates, and there was a conglomeration of all these buildings with six stories and six apartments on every floor. Wow. And we had two public schools on either side of the project. People used to hang out their windows and watch all the, everybody else's kids. Everybody talked. The the older generation would sit out in the summer and gab, you know, but everybody knew everybody's business. We had Chinese neighbors, Italian neighbors, you know, people from every background.
1: You are who you say you are, you know, and I can tell that when you found your purpose, what a beautiful thing to find and to know it's yours and to have that reaffirmed by that medium. I take those things
3: not so seriously, but as a guide. You know, but right. it's amazing when you ha- have different readings, even with astrologers or mediums or people that are psychic, all of them say the same thing.
1: Well, then you know so, you're on the right yeah, path. We're,
3: we're surrounded by angels, Michael. They are there. They never totally mm-hmm. leave us. And as a matter of fact, when I did a fundraiser for my friend, in Sedona, in 2011, a friend of mine, before I went on, she knocked on the door. I opened the door, just ajar, you know, a little bit. She snapped a picture of me. And the picture came out, and there was a spirit in there. And it was the shape of a woman. And right away, my friend Heather said, went to my friend Barry, and he said, Oh, my God, it's Diana. It's my mother. And I know that she's around me always.
1: When did your mother pass?
3: 2002.
1: Tell us about Save the Country. What was that kernel of inspiration that said... It needs to be out right now. People it need means, to hear this message.
3: What, what we what we were going through. Yeah, politically and otherwise, and the separations of people because it was building into violence and hatred. And there are things that I would rather have in in, in the leadership role with com- much more compassion. I love eloquence. I love elegance. I love compassion, heart, spirit, and brilliance to be in the leadership department. To me, it's so important to get these messages out to the world.
1: What a pleasure. What a pleasure. I look forward to hearing more. It's been lovely
3: speaking with you. I look forward to meeting you in person over that cup of coffee. I got fury in my soul. Fury gonna take me to that glory. goal. in my mind, I can't study war no more. Save the people, save the children, save the country.
1: Save the country. It goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway. Rosalind Kind is incomparable. And even though her latest song was inspired by the Trump regime, its message never fades. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break with an IMRU heartthrob, Kevin Spiritus.
0: Mabel Hampton and the Lesbian Herstory Archives, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. As the Great Depression took its grip, star entertainers of the Harlem Renaissance suddenly found themselves out of work. Mabel Hampton, for one, became a cleaning woman in New York City for four decades. Along the way, she became a black lesbian icon in the Bronx. After collecting African-American and lesbian memorabilia, letters and posters documenting her life, she donated it all to the Lesbian Herstory Archives, providing a window into the lives of black women and lesbians during the Harlem Renaissance. Joan Nesley, the co-founder of Lesbian History Archives, had long considered Hampton a close friend and lesbian role model. Their relationship traced all the way back to the 1950s, when Hampton was hired to help care for Nesley as a little girl. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
4: Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to IMRU.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Kevin Spiritus got his first professional job at 18 on Broadway in a chorus line, but he is best known to TV viewers from his many years on NBC's Days of Our Lives. To many gay fans, it's his turn on the streaming series After Forever. And in studio today, we have the series co-creator, star, and executive producer, Kevin Spiritus. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Your creative life has taken you to six slasher film sequels, Broadway, daytime television, concerts, and now the online world of digital drama series with After Forever. What led you down this new path as a series co-creator?
5: You are kind of part of that reason why. I was living in New York, and Patricia Darba, who was my leading lady on Days of Our Lives, called me up one day and said, Get a nice suit. We're going to take you to the ISA Awards. I didn't know what we were going to, but I remember that's the first time I ever saw all this digital content that was being presented. And the two that stuck out were Hustling, that Sebastian Lacoste had created, and Pretty. I just went, wow, I got to do something like this. I got to create something, something real, something personal to me.
1: Thanks to Patrika Darbo. Well,
5: hands up to Patrika Darbo, yes. I remember rushing up to Sebastian Lacoste going, Hustling, it's amazing. You're You're fantastic. I want to work with you. And he put me on to the second season and the third season of Hustling. And then your executive producer, Steve Silverman, Steve Silverman and Michael Caruso, created Winterthorn. And in 2014, I crossed paths with Michael Slade in the New York gym. And he said, are you Kevin Spiritus? I think I used to write for you when you were on Days of Our Lives. And that was the beginning of our conversation about creating a show together.
1: Season one has been received quite well. Yeah. Would you like to share the success of that?
5: After yeah. Forever, the digital series now on Amazon in its first season won five Emmy Awards. Erin Cherry won Outstanding Supporting Actress. I won Outstanding Lead Actor. We won Outstanding Writing, Michael Slade and I. Outstanding Director for Jennifer Pepperman. And we also won Outstanding Digital Series. That night, After Forever became the first LGBT-themed drama to ever win five Emmys. and that covers primetime and cable and digital.
1: I just attended the season two premiere at the Renberg Theater in Hollywood.
5: A little industry screening.
1: Were there any particular challenges in pitching this series?
5: Michael Slade and I struck up this conversation about, you know, what each of us were doing at this time. We didn't know each other. I wanted to create a story about gay men my age. I was starting to feel that it didn't matter what we talked about as long as it was true. You know, being a leading man, you don't talk about your sexuality, you don't talk about your life, you just be what the part is. I was single at the time, and I wanted to create a series about dating in 2014, the year we met. And he had wanted to also write a story about men over 40 as well, and he had just lost his partner a couple years prior. What was beautiful was, is he was ready to start to creatively work through some of that. And it's kind of our desire to tell stories about who we are and who we know and who we are in this world. Gay men over 40 are really kind of off the canvas of creative storytelling. Do we tell it 40 and up or 50 and up? And then it, it really fell into place. Or this is, I'm 50 at that
1: time-ish. <laughs> I'm 50-ish too. Yeah, we're, we're,
5: <laughs> we're looking good for 50-ish, yeah. I, I hope. But Michael wanted to create this story from a place of healing his experience with, with loss. And his partner who had passed at that time had been diagnosed with the same diagnosis that Jason is diagnosed with in the series. And so we used that. And as soon as we kind of found the base of, of how we're going to tell why this man is single and why he wants to go out into the world and meet other people and how he's dealing with loss, it just sort of fell into place. Again, Michael and I wanted something that we knew and that was personal to us because we didn't see those men on screen. We didn't see those men on TV. We didn't see those men in theater even. And it's very few and far between. So you either have the hot young 20 year olds, or you've got the old man down the hall with a cat. That was the desire. And once we kind of had that story in place, telling the story with each segment and each episode, and then we wanted to do short form because that's what we were very excited about. Each episode is like a little story in itself, like a little movie. And back to your question about, did we have any issues pitching a story like this? Yes, did you? Uh, We did not, because we created it ourselves. We didn't have standards and practices down our neck going, you know, you can't do this, you can't say that, and this isn't right. But what we did want to do is tell the story. And because we are self-distributed at this time, we have put it on Amazon ourselves. We are happy to be on Amazon in the USA and the UK, but we're looking for a international distributor to take our story all over the world.
1: Have you personally felt unseen at any time in the LGBTQI plus community?
5: It wasn't that it was unaccepting of me. I wasn't accepting of it. So I kept myself out of it for the longest time. I was conditioning my life based on an image and an idea of what was acceptable. So cut to just not giving a flying frick anymore and seeing what was important to me and seeing what was personal to me. And it's very interesting how the roles that I would get cast in, along the way, were always roles that had something to do with my personal growth. So wherever I was in my life, I could see where my personal growth was being tested or being worked out. And that was what was so exciting to see as the result in the film or the TV or on stage. And then I started to realize, wow, the roles that I really excel at are some of these roles that are are gay thematic, you know, or the whole piece is gay thematic. We do tell after forever as a love story. It happens to be about two men, but it's really about loss and our relationship to loss and my character's relationship to loss from personal experience, from loss in my life, from love in my life, that I can channel that into the character, into the piece. And Michael as well. Michael Slate has said that every character he writes is a part of him as well. As our head writer and as our beautiful wordsmith, he just knows it so well. If you ever want to write a show or a play or a series, your secret weapon is Michael Slade. In the community situation, I used to drop into the community when it was comfortable for me and then I'd pull out.
1: Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. Continue. I used to... <laughs> I'm still <laughs> laughing. No. no with that in mind, let me create a scenario for you. You're driving down Santa yes. Monica Boulevard through Boys Town. And you see all the billboards and you see all the magazines and the bars and all the adverts and whatnot. You get a certain feel about where you fit within that community. Yeah, I
5: never felt like I fit. Right.
1: So then you drive through your 30s. Then you drive through your 40s. Now you're driving through West Hollywood at 50. Have you ever felt unseen as a gay man in that community? And how does that fit within the world of After Forever?
5: Well, I have to say, have I been seen as a gay man is reflective of how I see the gay world. You know, we have to hold a mirror up to ourselves. I'm not a Friday night, Saturday night bar hopping kind of guy loud music and dancing till all hours in the morning, it's never been part of my world. I never felt invited in because I didn't have the desire to be there. However, as I've gotten older, I can appreciate the community that it has created for LGBT plus world. Now, Michael and I are both receiving extraordinary compliments about how the work that we've created has told story about older men who are kind of pushed out of that community And that's beautiful, and yet it's sad, and it kind of has this bittersweet feeling. I'm glad that people are recognizing themselves in some of the story because it's important.
1: This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with Kevin Spiritus, co-creator, executive producer, and star of the digital drama series After Forever.
5: We all belong, and we all should be able to drive up and down any boulevard and just be part of that world.
1: Feeling vibrant and sexual and alive and all those kinds of feelings. It's a complete picture of who you are as an individual and how that should not fade over time, but maintain. I think you're so good at giving that aspect of our lives and our story and telling that part of the story. And after forever or portraying men and women above 40 past 50 who are still vibrant, sexual human beings.
5: I was and I always have been extremely attracted to people and the way they tell their stories of success when it comes from a place of their hero's journey, their, their, their darkest night, their their weaknesses turned into their strengths. I wasn't afraid anymore to talk about myself. And I express that to Michael, the story that we've weaved together and the things that he's created to say. And I'm so blessed. But I feel at the same time, we all have a story to tell, something important to stand behind. And each of our lives has meaning. Why not stand in that?
1: If your 50-something self could talk to your 20-something self, what advice would you give that young man?
5: Not unlike Brian, my character in After Forever conjures up Jason, his deceased husband.
1: There are times when that
5: kid, that 20-year-old something, that 30-year-old something, or even that teen is yelling and screaming so loud that I have to pay attention to him. When you go through the challenges of raising money or meeting a deadline, whatever the thing is that is worrying you, I have to go back to that younger self and remind myself that guy has no fear. That younger kid had just nothing but excitement and optimism and love and want of playing. That younger self, if I stop and slow myself down sometimes, I can hear him reaching out to me. He is still present. If I would talk to that teenager, a kid in his 20s who was so afraid to be himself, that I would have never, ever believed that we could do this. I would have never believed that I could stand in my, my truth and say, thank you for your acknowledgement and thank you for being able to let us tell a story like this. And that's what warms my heart about after forever more than anything
1: you have such a vibrant positive can-do spirit were there any unfamiliar challenges that you faced with creating and producing after forever
5: back in 2009 i moved to new york and i had never lived in new york for any amount of time over a year in 2009 i moved there and that was the seven and a half years in which i stepped into producing on broadway and meeting an incredible circle of creative producers and financial producers. I took that journey along with my performing and continuing to act. And by the time I had met Michael in the gym that day, I felt it was time to take what I had learned, hopefully what I learned, and use it for something that I was creatively arrested by. And that's my protocol to getting involved with any project is what is arresting about it? Is it the subject matter? Is it the people I want to work with? Or is there a part for me that speaks to me and I have to speak it? And when Michael and I started talking, I just knew this was right. This show had to be born. I just went to people and said, we're going to do a little reading. We'd like you to come. That way you could see what it's about. And people were reacting and responding to it so beautifully. I never once asked them to invest in the project. What I realized is they were investing in my vision of this project. That's how Michael and I kind of went to people and kind of created that connection of raising money. We had people who invested. We had people who donated. And then we had people who donated sets. and offices and restaurants and their home. Laura Barquette, who is an executive producer on the series, she has this beautiful five-story townhouse on the Upper East Side, New York, and she gifted us this home to use. I call it the Barquette Studios.
1: When did the title, After Forever, come to light?
5: I was sitting in Michael's apartment. He wanted to make this character of Brian, my role, very real, and he felt that there had to be something, there had to be a concrete floor for him to stand on of why he was single. He asked me if I was single or involved, and I said, I'm single at the time. And I asked him if he was, and he said he had just lost his partner. And after I asked him how it happened, I said, do you still talk to him? And he had responded, yeah, I do. And I said, if you would be willing to use something like that, if it was comfortable for you to use that part of the story or that diagnosis or something, as the reason Brian's single and Jason being gone, maybe we could talk to Jason. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it is a way of telling the story. So we have reality. We have flashbacks, and then we have Brian conjuring Jason up. We just sort of both came up with it together. You think you have happily ever after. No matter what happens when you lose somebody, you will never be done with that relationship. You'll never be done with that love. As long as you keep that person in your heart, their life is still with you.
1: And that organic process Mm. that resulted in this wonderful title for the show also led to a beautiful theme song. It's gorgeous.
5: Craig DeSilva is a good old friend of mine, great songwriter, and he does a lot of theme music for other projects. And I asked Michael if I could just approach him and see what he thought about maybe writing a song. I came to Los Angeles in 1982, and the wave of young men that I knew who I lost through the AIDS epidemic in the theatrical community, and it was devastating to me, and Craig was there at that time as well. We had mutual friends who we lost, and he was very connected to the idea. He read the script, and he said, I would love to do this, and he came up with this incredible song called My Forever. only play it once all the way through in each season
1: who sings this song Leo Nicole. it's the human story of loss and love that we can all relate to to some degree
5: everybody you're going to deal with loss we can't get out of this game without it there's no handbook I'm not saying we do it the best and I think second season we've tried to show that the relationship between Brian and Jason was not this perfect holier-than-thou relationship there's some ups and downs
1: where do we find you on social media?
5: after AfterForeverTheSeries.com. Instagram is AfterForeverTheSeries, and Twitter is AFTheSeries. Anywhere you Google, AfterForeverTheSeries.
1: And KevinSpiritis, K-E-V-I-N-S-P-I-R-T-A-S.com. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? At the end of December 2020... After Forever co-creator Michael Slade passed away following a battle with cancer. A standalone spin-off series, After Forever: Riley's Unforgettable School Project, and season 3 of the original After Forever series is set to be released. More information can be found at K-E-V-I-N-S-P-I-R-T-A-S K E V I N S P I R T A S.com. There's still time for a last word. And tonight, perhaps our favorite storyteller, Peter Dell, is paying for it.
4: I remember feeling like I needed it. Maybe it was the action of going to buy the Playgirl, which would finally prove to myself, really show my core, that I was gay, and that it wasn't just curiosity. But I do know it was the first thing I ever did out of my own desire. Buying the magazine was the first time I allowed myself to fantasize without shame. We were on our summer vacation in Calistoga. It was the first family trip without my brother. My dad, my mom, and I took the drive up the coast to the Northern California city. It was the second or third day of the trip that I realized I needed the magazine. I remember thinking, now is the perfect opportunity to do it. You're out of town, no one you know is here. I don't remember anymore how I convinced them that I should go alone to the Santa Rosa Mall, this 13-year-old boy. But I was both resourceful and paranoid and somehow I made it work. We would go Saturday, the last day of our trip. So there I was, this 13-year-old gay kid with three hours to kill in this strange city at this great mall with 50 stores. The only thing I could think about, though, was that damned magazine. The one with the hairy-chested fireman on the covers I'd seen as I passed the newsstand. Straight for the B. Dalton on the first floor, the one right by the entrance. Too many people. The three guys browsing at the magazine rack wouldn't leave. I cut my losses, moved on. Walden Books, second floor, next to the hot dog on a stick. Magazine rack. Penthouse. Hustler. Playboy. No. Playgirl. Not. Anywhere. The store's empty, too. Damn. Need to move on. Back to B. Dalton. empty now. Only the clerk and me. He's reading something, not paying attention. I reach up quickly and grab the magazine, roll it into the tightest tube that I can. I take it to the counter for the final, brutal part, the part I've envisioned all week, the part which has kept me away from buying Playgirl for years. I set the magazine on the counter in front of the clerk, face down. The clerk, a pudgy guy three times my age, picks up the magazine, turns it over, and looks for the price. Then he saw the title. He looked at me, looked at the title, looked at me, looked at the title. His head didn't move, only his eyes. He frowned. Then I said the line I had been rehearsing all week, the line that was supposed to take away all the awkwardness, the words which would make everything seem so normal. Funny what they make you buy on a scavenger hunt. He didn't buy it, not for a second. The frown didn't become a smile like I had pictured. If anything, it deepened. Our eyes met and neither of us moved. We both knew the truth. Or maybe, only he did. The moment broke. He looked down to scan the magazine into the cash register, and I realized I could breathe again. I sucked in air like a drowning man surfacing. He was going to go along with me. He wasn't going to call the cops or, worse yet, my parents. My scavenger hunt plan hadn't worked. Human kindness had prevailed. I paid the man and thanked him. He never said a word to me. As I grabbed the opaque bag, He smiled a distant, polite smile that screamed, It's your life, kid. I spent the remaining two hours, 45 minutes, in a stall in the upstairs men's room, reading the playgirl, and, yes, looking at the pictures of naked men. The editor's column that month was addressed to gay men who she said comprised 10% of the Playgirl readership. And I knew now that I wasn't part of the other 90%.
1: Okay. That's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young We are all born superstars She rolled her hair and put her lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say yes. 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 I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no
4: mistakes I'm on the right track Maybe I was born this way Don't add
3: yourself in regret Just love yourself and